Let's pray. Father, the riches of your word run deep. What you have revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation is glorious. It could and should take us a lifetime to consider and comprehend the wealth of your grace as described in the Bible. Lord, we want the word to change our lives. Lord, as we meditate on your word this morning, I ask that you would change our lives, particularly the very rhythms of our time, our days, our weeks, our years. Lord, as our lives change and come more into alignment with your word, may we rejoice in you, in the grace that you have prepared for us from the very creation of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. In April of 1909, the New York Yankees played a very strange exhibition baseball game. They were forced to take several unusual precautions at the beginning of the game, the first of which was, as people were coming in, the crowd, uh, he handed out cards to all, uh, the Yankees handed out cards to all of them with the specific instructions to not cheer and to not make any noise. Perhaps what was even more strange is the crowd was happy to obey those instructions. Second, the Yankees, instead of sending their best leadoff hitter to start the game, they instead sent a reserve in the game. And that's because they were afraid that as soon as the game started, he would be arrested. Now, what was the reason for them taking all of these precautions? Well, it was because they were playing a baseball game on Sunday, which at that time in that part of the country was illegal. In fact, the Yankees wouldn't play a legal Sunday baseball game in New York City until 1919, 10 years later. And to this day, many states still have laws that prohibit things on the Sunday, like car sales or alcohol sales. In fact, you may have run into one of these. Before I moved to Chicago, I lived in Minnesota, and so shortly after uh, moving there, I was going to a Sunday afternoon barbecue with some friends, and I wasn't preparing the food, so I thought I would contribute something. I wanted to stop at the grocery store and get some beer for the, the party. And as I went to the store, I walked over to the beer section, and to my surprise, the doors were closed. In fact, they were locked, and I was a little confused at what was going on for a minute, and then I realized, in Minnesota, it's illegal to sell alcohol in certain establishments on Sundays. Some people today find this kind of treatment of Sunday, or the Sabbath, a little more than old-fashioned. There's one group called the Minnesota Beer Activists, and they have a web page with a link where you can sign a petition and help do what they say, uh, and quote, bring Minnesota out of the dark ages. But many of us grew up in Christian homes where we tried to honor the Sabbath. Your parents may have uh, take, taken special care not to go out to eat on Sunday, or maybe they were very, uh, very cautious about doing any shopping on a Sunday. And this was part of an attempt probably to follow God's word, an honest attempt to obey this fourth commandment. So chances are you might be a little confused about the role of the Sabbath in the life of a Christian. What do we make of this fourth commandment in our lives as believers today? Today we'll examine this commandment with two different lenses. First, we'll look at it through the whole story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, how does the Sabbath change? 
And then we'll come back to Exodus and we'll look at it through a, a practical lens, a lens that has wisdom for us in terms of how we relate to God. Ultimately, what we'll see, though, is that as Christians, when we remember the Sabbath, we should remember this. Christ has already brought us into the ultimate Sabbath rest. So we should not make ourselves slaves to our work. Christ has already brought us into the ultimate Sabbath rest. So we should not make ourselves slaves to our work. So let's begin by looking at the Sabbath through the lens of salvation history, through the whole story of the Bible, starting with today's text in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Now, unlike other commandments in the Ten Commandments, this one comes with quite a bit of explanation. It starts in verse 8 with the command itself, remember the Sabbath day. Don't forget about this special day. Be sure that you observe this one day of the week. The second part of verse 8 tells us the purpose that Israel was meant to keep the Sabbath, to keep it holy. This day was meant to be special or set apart from the other six days of the week. Verses 9 through 10 explain exactly how Israel is meant to remember the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. It's a pretty simple concept. Do all your work on the first six days of the week, and on the seventh, don't do any work. Verse 11 explains the why. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This takes us full circle to the beginning of the commandment. The reason why Israel is meant to observe the Sabbath was because this was the pattern set by God the Creator. They were supposed to have a special connection with this Creator. The Sabbath was meant to be a holy day for a holy people to honor a holy God. The Sabbath was meant to be a holy day for a holy people to honor a holy God. You may recognize the language that's used here. It comes, it, it's very similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says there. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You see the emphasis here in Genesis 2 on God finishing his work in creation. He brought it to a close. And the word Sabbath actually comes from the word used in verse 2 here, rested. Now when we say God rested, we shouldn't necessarily think that God was really worn out from six days of creating the whole world and needed a breather. That's not what we mean. In fact, what we should think about is that God rested. He ceased. He stopped his work on the seventh day. This is similar to a trial, uh, or at least the ones I've seen on TV, where the lawyers will present their case and then they get to the end and they say the defense rests or the prosecution rests. They're not saying that they're really tired and they need a break, although that might be true. They're saying that their part of the case has come to a close. It's been ended. 
And that's what we see God doing on the seventh day. His work in creation has been brought to a close. It has been completed. Now, we should be careful not to move too fast beyond this special moment in a whole story of the Bible. Because it's all about to change in chapter 3. Here on the first seventh day, we see a creation in perfect harmony with its creator. The two are relating perfectly with one another. On this first seventh day, nothing in particular is happening except the creator and his creation are just coexisting together. There's no hint of sin or any blemish on that day. And then chapter 3 hits. Man and woman sin. And suddenly that perfect harmony that creation has with its creator is lost. It's ruined. It would be difficult to overstate just how tragic that moment is. Indeed, the whole rest of the story of the Bible is about God trying to reestablish that special connection with his creation. He wants to bring creation back to that glorious seventh day rest that they had at the beginning. And God's covenant with Israel in Exodus chapter 20 is a key step in that process. God is here making a special people who will know and relate to him in a seventh day rest kind of way even if that's just a faint echo of what was there on the first seventh day. It seems in Exodus at this point that Israel is not totally familiar with the Sabbath. In Exodus 16, they're told not to gather the manna, not to gather the bread that God is providing for them on the Sabbath day, but many of them still do. God is angry with them, but there's no penalty given for that particular disobedience of the Sabbath. But later on, after this covenant is made with God and Israel, now breaking the Sabbath will be punishable by death. So here in Exodus 20, at Mount Sinai, God is making a covenant with his people. And part of that covenant is the understanding that they will not work on the Sabbath day. This is sort of like a contract signing ceremony where the two parties have gathered together, they're signing and dating it, to ratify that they are going to agree to this relationship. And the covenant is even sealed with blood to show how grave a covenant it is. Moses sprinkles blood on the people in Exodus 24. And as we mentioned, the point of the Sabbath, from this point on, breaking the Sabbath will be punishable by death. This is part of keeping the law, the covenant that God is making between himself and Israel. Of course, we living on this side of the story know how all this turns out. Israel is not able to live up to this covenant relationship. They, in many ways, cannot keep the law, which includes not being able to observe the Sabbath day. And so they face exile, they endure exile and punishment from God because they can't obey this covenant. What this is showing and what they begin to realize through the Old Testament is that People cannot follow a law that's just written down for them. They need a law that's written on their hearts in order to obey it. This old, the covenant God made with Israel is meant to show that people need something more than just rules to relate to God. By Jesus' time, many of the religious leaders were painfully aware that breaking the covenant meant punishment. And part of this was their failure to observe the Sabbath day. And so they had begun to devote a lot of time to figuring out how a person should not work on the Sabbath. 
And this is a major source of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus doesn't deny the importance of the Sabbath day, but instead declares that he himself is Lord over the Sabbath. We see this in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28. It says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let that sink in for a moment to understand what Jesus is claiming. Who is the one who gave Israel the Sabbath? That would be God. Why did he give the Sabbath day to them? Because of his work in creation, where he made the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. Jesus is making the, command, or making the statement that he is God. He has authority over this whole Sabbath day and what does and does not happen on that day. In many ways, the Sabbath is a helpful way of understanding what Jesus came to earth to do. Remember, we, at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, we saw that God and his creation, including human beings, had a perfect relationship with one another. But then man and woman sinned against God. They rebelled against him. And that meant destruction to that perfect harmony that they first enjoyed. And they had to pay a penalty of death for their rebellion. And so Jesus has come. He has now come to try to establish a new covenant, one where he'll pay for the penalty of people's rebellion, and he'll establish a new covenant where God's law won't just be rules, but it'll actually be written on their hearts. So whoever would repent and believe in Jesus would now have a return, in a sense, to that perfect seventh-day type of relationship with God. Jesus paid for that sin with his own blood, by his own death and resurrection, now we who are once separated from our creator by repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus can have relationship with that creator. Hebrews 9.15 talks about how Christ's work on earth has established a new covenant. It says there, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Hebrews also talks about how Jesus, in establishing this new covenant, has brought a new kind of Sabbath rest for God's people. Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about believers entering God's rest, kind of a reference to that seventh day of creation moment where God and his creation had a perfectly harmonious relationship. In Hebrews 4.3, it says, for we who have believed enter that rest. And then it also goes on to say in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. This is a concept here that Ben Wilson helped us understand when he introduced the Ten Commandments weeks ago. He talked about for our part of the story, in our part of history, we have an already but not yet kind of awkward stage in history. There's a sense in which we as believers now have that Sabbath rest with our creator. We can enjoy that relationship with him. But we know that we fall short in many ways. Even though the law has been written on our hearts, we cannot uh, live in perfect holiness. Many times we fail in our way of living rightly with our creator. And so we look forward to the day when God will create a new heaven and a new earth when all of sin will be removed and we will return to that perfect, harmonious relationship with our Creator. So as members of the New Covenant, 
when we remember the Sabbath, we remember that Christ has already brought us into the ultimate Sabbath rest, relationship with the Creator through Jesus Christ. But that still leaves us with the question of, how do we observe the Sabbath? As believers in this new covenant, are we still obligated to continue to obey the fourth commandment found in the Ten Commandments? Ben also set us up to be able to answer this question as well. Remember, he talked about how we as members of the new covenant are looking back at the old covenant. And what we want to do with this commandment is we want to trace how it goes from that old covenant. It's refracted through the prism of Christ and now comes to us in a new way as a part of the new covenant. So what we want to do is we want to be careful to look at the New Testament and see how the authors there understood our role in obeying the Sabbath. Now, this is something that many pastors and scholars have debated for a long time. Some say that the concept of a Sabbath has passed from Saturday to Sunday because of all the references in the New Testament referring to believers gathering on the first day of the week or the Lord's day. This, of course, is because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And so that became a very logical time of the week for Christians to gather and remember their Savior. And some say that Christians are obligation, under obligation now to treat Sunday as the new Sabbath and to go to church and not work on Sundays. From what I see, looking at the New Testament, yes, com- Christians are commanded not to stop meeting regularly with one another to encourage one another. That is a commandment, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10. But it doesn't seem to know a particular day that that needs to happen. Sundays are a good day because most of us have the day free and we can gather together and worship in the morning and spend that day resting before we go to work on Monday. But that's not specified in the New Testament. But that can also be fulfilled in a way by gathering during the week in our ethos communities as well. So there's this sense in which we can gather, we're, we as believers are supposed to obey this commandment to gather together on a regular basis, but that can happen on a Sunday morning or during the week as well. Further, I think the New Testament shows that observance of the Sabbath as a particular day of the week that Christians are obligated to not work, that that's actually a part of the Old Covenant and that, has not, that does not remain in effect for those of us in the New Covenant. I think one place in the New Testament where this becomes clear is what Paul says in Colossians 2.16. There he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Thomas Schreiner professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary, writes this. What Paul says here is remarkable, for he lumps the Sabbath together with food laws, festivals like Passover, and new moons. All of these constitute shadows that anticipate the coming of Christ. He goes on to say that very few Christians will observe festivals and new moons and those sorts of things. So it's difficult to see why an exception would be made for the Sabbath. It seems pretty clear from the New Testament, from this and other places, that Christians are not obligated to observe the fourth commandment and taking the Sabbath and not working on that day. Instead, when we as Christians remember the Sabbath, we should remember that Jesus, by his blood, has brought us into a new covenant. 
He has brought us into a new period of rest with our Creator. We should remember on the Sabbath that one day we'll be able to fully enjoy our existence with that Creator, without sin, as God had intended in the very beginning. I grew up on a farm in Iowa, and in a farming area, it's very, very easy to see when your neighbors are working, because all you need to do is drive down the road, and you'll see them out there in their tractor and in their combine. And on Sundays growing up, you would almost never see someone out there on a Sunday. It just was a part of the culture. It was a part of the way things were. People just decided that they were not going to work on a Sunday, even during the busy times of harvest and planting each year. But now when I go back and I drive around on a Sunday, I see lots of people in the field. I see lots of tractors out there. What I'm saying is I don't think these farmers are breaking the law by working on a Sunday, even if they are believers. Now, perhaps we could ask a few more questions if they are believers about how wise is it for them to miss out on the gathering of other believers to do this work? How wise is it for them to do and miss out this one day, this chance, maybe the only chance they'll get during the week to gather with other believers to do something that they could have done the other six days of the week? Either way, for Christians, if they're in the field, we can't really confront them as Sabbath breakers because there's no longer a Sabbath command to break for those of us who are in the new covenant. Now, it's time to maybe pause there and do a heart check. As you hear me saying that as members of the new covenant, we're no longer to keep this fourth commandment. What's going on in your heart? What's happening right now as you hear that? For many of you, you probably feel overwhelmed as though now that there's no boundaries and you can work on Sunday, you know your to-do list is so long, you're just going to have to work on Sundays now. And so you feel overwhelmed by this. Others of you want to achieve. And so you hear this and you think, oh, now I can work on Sunday and I don't have to feel guilty at all. This is awesome because I've got stuff to do. Before we get that far, it may not be an obligation for believers to take a Sabbath, but it's still a wise thing for us to do. Even if you aren't necessarily sinning by working all seven days of the week, I would say you're probably more likely to sin because you're working seven days of the week. Let me say that again. Even if you aren't necessarily sinning by working all seven days of the week, I would say you're much more likely to sin in some other way because you are working seven days a week without taking a break. Let's take a look back at Exodus again to see the practical wisdom side of this for living. The fourth commandment is remarkably simple, but incredibly profound. It has a sweeping impact over all of Israel's society. It's so simple. You work six days. You don't work on the seventh day. It's sweeping. How much of your work should you do in six days? All of it. How much of your work should you do on the seventh day? None of it. Can anyone work on the Sabbath? No. Not you. Not your children. Not those who work for you. Not men. Not women. Not the non-Israelite immigrant who happens to be staying with you at the time. Not even your animals can work on the Sabbath day. 
But what makes this commandment especially profound is the fact that God is giving it to a people who were just freed from slavery. He's commanding them here to take a day off. Why would he do that? Who doesn't want at least a one-day weekend? Particularly the Israelites coming from this life of slavery where the Egyptians were ruthless in how they worked them. The first chapter of Exodus describes their lives as, quote, bitter with hard service. God miraculously delivered them out of that endless hard work. So why would he need to command them not to work all seven days of the week? I think this commandment reveals something very ugly about human beings in general. Our tendency is to make ourselves slaves to work-related idols. And left to our own devices, we will end up making other people serve those idols as well. What God is trying to do is trying to build into the Israelite society an idol buster. All the idols that start to form from working six days a week, God is going to put an idol buster of taking a Sabbath rest to put a stop to whatever it is that's driving them to work so hard and to want to work all seven days of the week. So while we're not obligated to obey the Sabbath, stopping from your work at least one day a week is definitely a wise decision because this will help you bust those work-related idols that develop if you don't. For us, taking the Sabbath rest is a wise way for a holy people to honor a holy God. Taking a Sabbath rest is a wise way for a holy people to honor a holy God. Now, what do I mean by a work-related idol? As Ryan talked about several weeks ago, idols are created things that are good, that may be good in and of themselves, but when they're elevated to the place of God, they become terrible. That's when they become idols. So perhaps for you, a work-related idol is possessions. You've never told anybody, but one of the reasons you're working so hard right now is because of that dream house that you want to live in someday. Maybe it's years in the future, years away, but it's part of what's driving you to work so hard here now and to work seven days a week. And ultimately, if your idol is possessions, there's probably a deeper heart issue. Maybe you crave the comfortable lifestyle that that home represents. Or maybe it's ultimately security that you crave. You're not really sure that anyone, even God, is going to care for you and provide for you to give you that security. So it's on you. And that's a job that takes seven days a week to do. Or perhaps your work-related idol is achievement. It's the recognition you can get from doing something great. Maybe you're a mathematician or a scientist working on a problem that has gone unsolved for generations. And what you want is to be the one that solves that problem and has your name associated with that solution for the next generation. Or maybe you just really want straight A's and that's it. But you work long hours without ever stopping to take a break because you're driven by this goal, by this idol of recognition from other people. Perhaps your work-related idol is an image of yourself that you're hoping to project to others. You know that to maintain the image that you are projecting of the uber-competent, comp ultra-skilled, perfect person without flaws requires more than just five days of work or six days of work. It requires all seven. Maybe others don't actually see you putting in that time, but you know 
To maintain that image, that's how much you have to give. Now, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. Possessions, achievements, good reputations, those can all be blessings from God that we pour back as worship to him. But our tendency as human beings is to let those things have too much power, and soon we become a slave to our work to try to meet those idols. And because they're never satisfied, they drive us to work more and more hours, to work seven days a week. They will not allow you to rest. This is where the commandment to take a Sabbath shows God's wisdom and his grace. He didn't want his people, having just left slavery, to make themselves slaves to work and endless toil again. By stopping once a week, he was forcing them to stop serving the idols that were making their lives bitter. The God they worship wanted them to pause and enjoy and just exist with him for one day. I think this is what Jesus meant when he said in Mark 2, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Not surprisingly, Scripture points again and again to the wisdom of stopping our work. Proverbs 23, 4 through 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Saying, be wise enough to stop your work. You will never reach a point where you feel like you've had enough wealth. If that's the idol that's driving you, there will always be more and more to get. Jesus in Matthew 6.24 talks about the fact that you can't serve idols and God at the same time. He writes, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and possessions. You cannot serve God and human recognition. You cannot serve God in the idealized image of yourself you're hoping to project. Again, we don't want to make ourselves slaves to our work because Christ has already brought us into the ultimate Sabbath rest. We don't want to make ourselves slaves to our work because Christ has already brought us into the ultimate Sabbath rest. That's why taking a Sabbath rest now is a wise way for a holy people to honor a holy God. It's a wise way for a holy people to honor a holy God. Now, this all kind of sounds like a, a life hack, doesn't it? It sounds like some productivity blog that is telling you that the way that you can produce more is by taking more rest. And it, you don't have to read that far into those blogs to see them saying this. They're saying things these days like, you need eight hours of sleep. Make sure you get eight hours of sleep. Take vacation time. Don't work all the time. Because ultimately, they realize then when you take a break, you become more productive. This is maybe a case where the wisdom of the world and the Bible kind of are intersecting here. There is a point that they are realizing where we are finite beings. We don't have unlimited resources of strength and energy. And we can go along with this to a point. Maybe what God is saying in the Bible is that Ultimately, if you take a break, you'll achieve more in those six days than if you had worked all seven. But ultimately, our goal is not to rest for the sake of productivity. As believers, we want to rest and work in order to honor our Creator. So making a practice of regularly taking a Sabbath is an idol buster. 
Scheduling a, stab a Sabbath and stopping your work can bring you face to face with those idols and help put them in their proper place. And it's not just meant to crush the idols that are in our lives. It's meant to recenter your worship on the creator, the one who built this rhythm of work and rest into the very way that he created the universe. Part of rightly relating to God as creator is realizing that you are a creature. You are finite. You don't have unlimited reserves of strength and energy. God does. We don't. So revel in the fact that you are one of God's creatures. And through Christ, you get to know that creator. Take a Sabbath. Take a nap. Enjoy that which God has already provided for you. Remind yourself that God can still provide for you. Reestablish your trust in him. That he is the one who gives you your daily bread. It would be really ironic if at this point I gave you like a list of 15 things to start doing. So I won't do that. Instead, I'm just going to challenge you today to do one thing. Schedule your next Sabbath rest. When you go home today, look at your schedule and try to find the next day that you can take 24 hours to just rest and enjoy God. Start building this rhythm of rest into your life some way. That's a good, good kind of life hack thing to do, right? To go look at your schedule and schedule your Sabbath day. Plan your Sabbath so you can be ready to put your work aside and enjoy God on that day. And your rest doesn't have to be overly complicated. Just do something that helps you rest and enjoy God. Do something that helps refresh you. So schedule your Sabbath day. And as it approaches, wait to see what emerges in your heart. As you get closer to that scheduled Sabbath, wait to see what idol comes up that tempts you to want to abandon your plan to take a rest and to work on that day instead? Learn something about what your work-related idol might be. But then, assert your trust in God. Stick to your schedule. Enjoy your Sabbath day. Breathe. Simply exist and enjoy the rest that your Creator provides for you. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that by working without stopping, we have put possessions, achievement, and a good reputation ahead of you. We have made those things idols and have lived more to serve those than to serve you. We confess that we have not trusted you enough to pause from our work and enjoy you. Jesus, we are so grateful that you worked to provide us a way to give us rest. Your blood has paid for our sin of working to please work-related idols. Your blood has paid for all of our sin, and you have brought us into the ultimate rest. Give us wisdom now to be the created, finite creatures that we are, to trust you and to rest from our work. We praise you and look forward to the day when we will enjoy the complete Sabbath rest in the new earth to come. In Jesus' name, amen.